bring that about. In Jesus' name, amen. In his epic song, The Mississippi Squirrel Revival, Ray Stevens talks about how he was a boy and he went to Mississippi each summer. And he sings about going down there and he went to church with his family. And one day he caught a squirrel, which he decided that he would bring to church. Don't Google Mississippi Squirrel Revival until you go home. Okay, so go home, listen to the song. But he's there, little boy, with his friend named Hugh. And they're sitting there with this shoebox, and there's a squirrel inside of it, there at church. And the name of the church is the First Self-Righteous Church. While he was showing the squirrel to his friend Hugh, the squirrel got out of the box and it began darting all over the room. Although nobody in the church except the two boys realized that the squirrel was loose. So the squirrel ends up getting up a man's overalls. And the man starts dancing around in the aisle, not realizing that it's the squirrel that's making him do all of this dancing, but thought that maybe it was the Holy Spirit that was making him dance in the aisles. After bringing this man in the overalls to repentance, the squirrel then darts up the, sis- uh, up the dress of Sister Bertha better than you. She then begins to confess all kinds of sin, and the song says... She began to cry and then to confess to sins that would make a sailor blush with shame. She told of gossip and church dissension. But the thing that got the most attention was when she talked about her love life. And then she started naming names. It was clear that revival was taking place in this church. A man and now a woman had begun to confess their sins. All thanks to the squirrel. Yet nobody knew about the squirrel. But it didn't stop there. In the third verse it says, While seven deacons and the pastor got saved... And $25,000 got raised, and 50 volunteered for missions in the Congo on the spot. And even without an invitation, there were at least 500 rededications, and we all got rebaptized whether we needed it or not. Now, you've heard the Bible stories, I guess, of how we parted the waters from Moses to pass, all the miracles God has brought to this old world. But the one I'll remember to my dying day is how we put that church back on the narrow way with a half-crazed Mississippi squirrel. The day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church of that sleepy little town of Pascagoula, there was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and shouting hallelujah. Now obviously, some of you don't think it's funny at all, but I think it's a funny song. But the song makes me wonder about something. Is revival something that we... In our own strength, with our own tactics, is revival something that you and I can create? Is revival as simple as setting a squirrel loose into a church? Of course, it's a ridiculous song, but you can almost see that happening, can't you? That a squirrel darting around and making people move, and maybe you're just kind of observing what's happening. Why are those people moving? Oh, God must be doing something within that person. For all we know as observers, God is doing something because everybody is jumping around and dancing. But on a more serious level... Is revival, or seeing revival happen in our midst, as easy as holding a revival service or a week of services? You might be driving down the road this summer, and on a church sign somewhere, it might say, Revival Week, join us to hear evangelist so-and-so. What would be the silver bullet when it comes to revival? Would it be a squirrel? 
Because whatever it is, you can be sure that as a pastor, and many pastors, would all want to know what the silver bullet is for revival so that we can implement it so mass revival can take place in our church and in our county, in our state, and in our country to see people from all over the place being drawn in to God. Is revival the result of a well-crafted, creative, cutting-edge service with videos, lights, smoke, and a rock band? Is revival the result of a traditional, old-school, piano and organ-accompanied worship service? Is revival the result of a humor-laced, illustration-filled, TED Talk kind of a sermon? Is the revival the result of a Bible-thumping, pulpit-kicking preacher? How can we get revival to happen? The reality is that you and I cannot make revival happen. We cannot make revival happen in our church and in our country. The only thing that you and I can really ultimately do as it comes to revival is to recognize revival when we see it happening. Certainly we can pray for revival, asking God to give us a fresh sense of who He is and who we are, to give us a fresh thirst for the Word of God, to give us a repentant life, a new commitment for Him. But we cannot ultimately make revival happen. We simply have the opportunity to recognize when it comes upon us and then to relish in it if God is so kind to bring it. And what I'm going to argue for this morning is that Nehemiah chapter 8 demonstrates for us what it looks like when revival begins to happen in the lives of God's people. What is it that makes the people of God wake up from their lethargy, to to shake off the tiredness, to, to have new and fresh eyes? What is it that makes God's people see Him anew? One pastor answers this question well when he said, whenever spiritual slumber has taken place, you can always know that the Word of God has ceased to take preeminence in the people's lives. When spiritual slumber takes place, it is because the Word of God has been removed from the preeminent spot in our lives. Spiritual sleep happens when the Word of God becomes that second or third or fourth level voice in your life. Spiritual malnourishment happens when we begin to feed ourselves with the junk food of worldly wisdom instead of the meat and the Word of the living God. And so in an attempt to diagnose where the Word of God ranks in your life, I ask you, do you read God's Word? Do you love God's Word? Is God's Word something that you have to come to daily, morning, evening, anywhere in between on your lunch break? When you're processing something in life, do you drop everything and grab your Bible or do you pick up your phone and start searching into Google? Do you look forward to hearing the Word of God preached and taught on Sunday mornings and in other settings, downloading podcasts and watching videos online of of the Word of God being taught? Do you crave God's Word like the psalmist says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or when he says, oh, how I love your law It is my meditation all the day. Diagnose your heart. Ask God even now to to reveal to you the state of your heart this morning. Do you love the Word of God or do you not love the Word of God? Are you kind of in the middle, a little passive? This morning we're going to see a people, really a bright and shining spot for God's people, who are craving God's Word. 
Maybe some of you know the context of the book of Nehemiah, but the people were in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And as a church, we've been in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has been in Babylon in that captivity. But then the people leave Babylon and they are brought back to the land. And this man named Nehemiah is really one of the guiding forces within these pages. Of course, it's named, the book is named after him. But Nehemiah is building these walls, protecting the people, rebuilding their city after such a long time in Babylon. But the recognition of the people within this chapter is not just that their city needs to be revived and brought up from the ashes, but they themselves need to be revived and brought up out of the ashes. I want you to see, beginning in verse 1, how this revival begins to transpire. The first point that we're going to see is the reading of God's Word. And this is all in the back of your bulletin, by the way. The first point is the reading of God's Word. The second point we'll see is the explanation of God's Word. Third, the inward response to God's word. And then finally, the outward response to God's word. And so first, the reading of God's word. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Milcahiah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Yes, I did practice reading those names. <laughs> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was above all of the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their hearts and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So a couple things about the first verse is that you have the people and you have the reader. The, the people are gathering together as one. This is a congregation. Some have estimated that the amount of people here would have been about thirty to 50,000 people. They would have gathered together as one congregation. But then you have the reader who is Ezra. Of course, there was a book of the Bible named after Ezra. He's a fairly prominent figure within the Old Testament. Verse 1 here refers to Ezra as a scribe. And just like in Jesus' day, the scribes would have been very well versed in the law of God. And so we also see within Ezra, the book named after him in chapter 7, verse 6, it said that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And so this man would have had a steep understanding of God's word. And I love the request that these people have for Ezra that you see in verse 1. You notice that it's not Ezra who goes and grabs his Bible and jumps over to the water gate. It says in verse 1, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. Hey Ezra, bring the word of God with you. This is the the first sign that we really begin to see that revival is happening in the hearts of God's people is that they're hungering for God's word. They want to hear it read. Bring the law, Ezra. To put this maybe into our own setting, you all 
know that in coming here that you are going to hear God's word read. You're going to hear God's word preached. And we usually have a key section of our service where we read through what is about to be preached. But if we were to have a baptism or to have a cookout or an event this summer as a church family. And you came to me and I got a flood of emails or a bunch of phone calls or texts. And you said, Brandon, bring the word with you. Bring your Bible with you. Read God's word to us. You wouldn't have a happier pastor. Be thrilling. And not that it's about my own happiness, but I think the Lord would be pleased with that kind of request. Brandon, bring the word. We want to hear God's word read as we're at this cookout or whatever. Come back to verse 3 in a minute. But did you notice that they erected what they erected for the singular purpose of reading God's word? In verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. There's no explanation as to exactly what this pulpit or platform looked like, but apparently it was some sort of raised pulpit where he could have laid out the word of God onto it. In verse 3, we see the amount of time that the reading of God's word went on. Did you catch that? From early morning to midday. We're talking five or six hours of reading God's word, the straight law being read to the people. Genesis with its 50 chapters, Exodus with its 40 chapters, Leviticus with its 27 chapters, Numbers with its 36 chapters, Deuteronomy with its 34 chapters. 30 to 50,000 people hanging on every word that Ezra and these men are reading. Verse 3 also says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They loved hearing the word of God in those moments. When your ears are attentive to God's word, your eyes don't droop. When your ears are attentive to God's word, you don't wish you were at the ball game. When your ears are attentive to God's word, there's really no place that you would rather be than under it. Revival begins with revived thirst for the word of God. But what you also see in genuine revival is a revived reverence for God's word. It's the understanding that when the word of God is read, that God himself is speaking. And that's the take that we have here in our church. That when God's word is being read, God himself is speaking. And we often like to think, well, I want to hear God say something to me. If you want to hear God talk to you, read the Bible out loud. This is God's word to you. You want to hear him speak. Read this book. It's the understanding that when the word of God speaks, God is speaking And we revere that. Look at verse 5 again. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was above all of the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. And so Ezra is on this platform. He opens up the word, and everybody can see that God's word is opened. And they have this renewed thirst for God's word, that when they see it opened, they rise. I told you this before, but about 10 years ago, I was able to spend about five weeks in Turkey. And I remember that when we were there, uh, one of the team members told us that when he was standing and talking to a Turkish man. And as he was standing there talking to this Turk, he grabbed his Bible, closed it up, put it in his backpack, and then he set his backpack on to the ground. And the Turkish man was shocked that my friend did this, that he put his Bible on the ground within his backpack. Now the point isn't to tell you that it's somehow wrong to put your Bible on the ground. There might be Bibles on the ground around you right now. The point is that there was at least a level of respect 
that the Muslim man had for his own book, and he just assumed that the Christian would have the same, at least outward reverence, for our own book. The people in Nehemiah 8 were not worshiping the Bible when they stood up to hear it. The people in Nehemiah 8 were revering the word of God. So the word of God was opened and it was read and they stood up. And I think that from now on, that's something we should do. Not because it's a command, but as a sign of respect that God is speaking through his word. But not only was God's word read, but God's word was explained. Look at verse 7. Kind of cut through those names and go down a little bit. But all of those names and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so here Ezra and the Levites are centralized. They're standing in front of all of the people. The word of God is opened. The people rise and listen to it read. And they begin to give the sense so that the people can understand. And if you read through this chapter, this word understand is something that shoots out like a laser. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 12 all mention the word understand or understood. What is the purpose of the explanation of God's word? So that the people can understand. This is my job. What they're doing is a job that I currently have. That my main task as your pastor is to stand before you and to preach and to teach the word of God to you. To take God's word, to read it to you, and then to explain it to you. And part of your job is to come to worship, to come to Sunday school, to come to Rooted, whatever setting that it is, you come ready to receive and to understand the word of God. To labor along with me in these precious few minutes that we have each week. To understand the chunk of God's word that is before us. It is so discouraging. I mean, as you survey the landscape in evangelicalism today to see a diminished interest in the Word of God, it's just all but evaporated. As though to understand the Bible is secondary to a bunch of other things. And so we don't really labor to understand it. We don't really labor as we come together to worship to understand it. We don't really labor within our homes or our own personal reading to understand God's Word. We don't have the thirst for it. Like we have in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're in desperate need of personal and corporate and national revival. Beginning though with a renewed thirst of God's word. Just last week a very well known preacher. Many of you would probably know his name if I said it. He said that Christians need to quote unhitch was the word he used. Unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. To separate yourself from the Old Testament. You you don't need that. That's not for you. The first two-thirds of the Bible. To disregard it. Like How is that even possible? When Jesus stood up to read the word. In Luke chapter 4. It says that Jesus was in the synagogue. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read God's word. And then he sits down again as the rabbis would. In order to explain it. Jesus did not stand up and read 1 Corinthians. He did not stand up and and, and read Romans. They hadn't been written yet. It would have been the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is himself the word of God. To unhitch yourself from the Old Testament or or any of the Bible is to unhitch yourself from Jesus. Church, we need a maximum priority on the word of God. Hearing it read, hearing it taught, and being sure to understand it. How else can you handle life if you don't understand God's revelation? 
I mean, you may not always realize it, but Nehemiah 8 is where we get the foundation for a lot of what we do here at Windsor Christian Fellowship. I mean, every time I preach, my Bible is laid open before you. And subconsciously, that should say something to you. The word is open and that it doesn't close until we're done. We have a specially made structure for the reading and the preaching of God's word. And you notice where the word of God and you notice where the pulpit itself is located within the church building. It's not off to the side. It's right into the center. One of the key moves that the Protestant reformers made several hundred years ago is they moved the pulpit to the center of the worship space. Within many Catholic churches, really all that I've ever seen, is the lectern is off to the side. But what the reformers said is we're going to take that lectern and we're going to put it straight into the middle of the building because that is where the reading and the preaching of the word belong. Our entire ministry here as a church flows from the preaching of God's word. The direction of every church should be the word of God. And the pulpit is the rudder that should be steering the ship. And so here at Windsor Christian Fellowship, we are utterly uh, uh, trusting in the spirit of God to use the word of God to build up the church of God. That is totally what we depend in. Like, I don't depend in, in clever, pragmatic ideas. I don't depend on events. I don't depend on any of that. And you shouldn't be depending on those things either. What we depend on to build God's church is God's book. And brothers and sisters, this is so freeing for both the leaders of the church. And it should be freeing for you as well. As a matter of confession, the times as a pastor when I am the most discouraged within the ministry is when I am depending on my own skill, my own cleverness, my own good ideas, my own putting my eggs in the basket of trying to attract people through anything but the simple, clear preaching and teaching of God's word. That the simplicity, when you look in the New Testament, it's not about gimmicks. It's not about throwing money everywhere. It's not about all of these big events or big shows. It's simply, this is God's word to us. This is the gospel message going forward to all the area and the churches being built up through the word of God. Changed lives come. Revival comes to us. When we very simply hear God's word read, we hear it explained, we understand, and the spirit of God is actively moving to make all of this happen. This is revival. Notice what happens inside of the people in verse 9. You see our third point, the inward response to God's word. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Isn't that beautiful? That they have heard the word read, they've heard it explained. Verse 12 says that they understood the words that were declared to them. And what happens? They mourn. That they're grieved. I think they experience what the Apostle Paul says and refers to as godly grief. This godly grief that produces within them repentance. The kind of repentance that says there there are no ifs, there are no ands, there are no buts. I am wrong. I have grieved God. 
I have sinned against God. I have done what is vile in His sight. He knows it and I know it. And so I come to Him now and I repent and I mourn over my own wickedness. Brothers and sisters, is hearing God's Word, whether you're reading it by yourself or having family devotions or here in worship, does the Word grip you and does it confront you in such a way that you're actually heartbroken over your sin and how you're out of step with it? Acts chapter 2 is beautiful where Peter is preaching to all of these Jewish people and at the end there's this beautiful phrase that says, and they were cut to the heart. Are there ever times where God's word just cuts your heart? Have you ever had the experience when you are hearing the preaching of God's word and God has gripped you with truth from the Bible? Just can't believe how the spirit of God is just destroying your heart but binding it up all at the same time? Have you ever had the experience where it felt like it was just you and the preacher into the room? Everyone else disappears. It's just you and the preacher. Like he knows your inner thoughts somehow. That's not the preacher. That's the Spirit of God. That there is a godly grief that the Spirit will produce in His people as the Word goes forward. But rest assured that He does not want His people to remain in grief. God does not want you to remain in grief. He wants to build you up. The Christian religion is not a religion of grief and guilt and sadness. Did you notice what all of the people, what they told the people as they mourned after hearing God's word? Verse 10 again. This is what they say to them as they're mourning. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then verse 12. And all the people went their way so they obey to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So it's a matter of rejoicing. Nehemiah and Ezra and all the Levites. No, no, no. Don't mourn. Don't cry. Don't be sad. Go your way and rejoice. In fact, eat the fat, it says. Eat the fat. Eat the good stuff. Drink the sweet wine. This is a holy day as unto the Lord. Friends, just by way of a side note, an application. Make the Lord's Day a day of rejoicing in your house. Don't just come to church and go home and treat it like any other day. Make the day of the Lord a day of rejoicing. Something for your children to look forward to. Save the good food. Save the steak for Sunday. Save your eat-out money for the Lord's Day. Rejoice and eat good food and drink and be generous to other people who may not have what you have and give and show hospitality. The Lord's Day is not a day for grief. The Lord's Day is a day for rejoicing, a day of feasting. Sometimes the grief we can experience when we realize we are not in step with God's Word can be overwhelming. But the Lord would not have us remain there. Grief over sin... Yes. Leading to repentance? Yes. But when we turn from our sin, we rejoice in the goodness and forgiveness of our God. Friend, I wonder this morning if you have genuinely repented of your own sin. Where you have come to that point of realization where you say, I have done wickedly in the eyes of God. I have broken His commandments. I do not deserve to be with Him. Maybe in the eyes of other people within the world, you would say, you know what, when I compare myself to this guy or to this girl, I'm actually doing pretty good. God's going to look at me pretty favorably. But the law convicts us all. It displays to all of us how wicked our hearts actually are. That it's not a matter of simply committing adultery. 
But to look at a woman and to lust after her, Jesus says, is to commit adultery in your heart. Or if you look at somebody else and you say, well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. I've never killed anybody. Jesus says if you look at somebody and you hate them, you have killed them in your heart. If you covet something of somebody, man, I wish I had their boat. I wish I had their house. You've stolen from them in your heart. You see, the law might be kind of upper echelon and we think, well, I haven't done any of those bad things. But then you go deeper and you say, well, actually, within my heart, I have done all of those things and so much worse. Have you come to a point where you realize that you have offended God? Has maybe that grief over that sin led you to repentance and say, God, you are the only one I can come to. And I ask now that you would forgive me of my sins. I trust in Jesus' work on my behalf that he has come to this earth. He has died on the cross for my sin, even my sins of the thought and actions. And I trust in him alone. We need to move on, though, from the inward response. You cannot hear God's word be truly internally impacted and then move away without any kind of outward obedience. Genuine inward change will result in outward action. And you find that in verses 13 to 18. You see the outward response to God's word because the inward change was genuine. In verses 13 to 18, you see that all of the heads of the homes, they get together with the priests and the Levites and Ezra, and they continue studying the Bible. And as they're studying it, they realize that it's actually the time for the Feast of Booths, one of these feasts that the Jews would celebrate, but it was something that they hadn't done for ages And this part of the chapter really encapsulates the whole text for us this morning. The people are remaining thirsty for God's word. They come to their leaders and they get more of God's word uh, uh, taught to them and read to them. They grow in their understanding of it. They realize they're not living in step with it. And they rejoice, the text says, as they begin to walk in obedience. And so they have this feast of booze. So this is really inward change has happened. Now let's do it. God's word says this. It impacts me. I'm going forward and I'm going to obey the word. Just like the old song says. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This really is the way of it. We must outwardly respond to the word of God. We must go forward with the knowledge that we have gained from the word. The internal change moving to outward action and obedience. This is really the only way to have a joyful existence as a Christian. As our Azadiah has said, joy is the fruit of renewed obedience. Joy is the fruit of a renewed obedience. The Christian life should be a joyful life because we are walking in step with the Spirit as He reveals to us how to live from the Word of God. Some of you may say, well, you know what? I haven't met many joyful Christians. But frankly, it seems like a lot of the Christians that I meet, that they're kind of miserable. And so often a dilemma for the Christian is that we desire to serve not only God, we want to serve the world as well. We want to kind of have one foot in both of those areas. We want to serve the Lord, but then our passions are pulling us and we want to serve the world as well, whether it's money or anything else. And Jesus very clearly says, you cannot serve God and money. Living in step with God and living in step in the world is an absolute impossibility for the Christian. Church family, do you have a a thirst for the Word of God? Do you long for that book? The reality is that a thirst for the Word of God is the first step toward genuine revival in your own heart and in our church, and we must be committed to it. 
We need to remember that ultimately a renewed commitment to the word of God is a renewed commitment to Jesus himself. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a reference to Jesus. It goes on to say, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. John also says in Revelation 19, And the name by which he, Jesus, is called, is the Word of God. My friends, a recommitment to the Word of God is a recommitment to Christ himself. He is the Word. And so when we come to the word and we hear the word, we learn of Jesus. And so a thirst for the word is really a thirst for Christ. Do you thirst for him? Do you thirst for the word of God? May God help us to do so. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear your word, to to sit under it. Lord, would you help us to revere it, to honor it as your word, that when this book is read and preached, you are speaking to us. Lord, would you revive our hearts, beginning with a fresh sight of the Bible, to read and to love this book and to let it influence every area of our life. We pray that you'll do this. Start it in me, Father. Start it in me. In Christ's name, amen.